All right, good morning. Great to uh, be with you this morning. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at uh, Resurrection OC. And uh, this morning we are going to be beginning a new series in the book of Jonah. So if you've got a Bible, I would love to encourage you, invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of Jonah. If you're following along in one of the blue uh, church Bibles that is on the ground near you, you can find Jonah on page 774. If you're not looking in one of those Bibles, I'll give you a minute to, uh, to look for the book of Jonah. It's a short book. Uh, if you open kind of the middle of the Bible, you'll be probably in the Psalms. And if you keep flipping to the right, um, if you don't pass too many pages, you'll, you'll find the book of Jonah. Uh, last week we finished um, a short series on the life of Abraham, talking about what does it look like to live a life of faith. And... Now, as we begin this book of Jonah, I think it's a, it's a great follow-up to um, living a life of faith because Jonah uh, is a picture of a man who is very conflicted about what it looks like to live a life of faith and to uh, be uh, obedient and respond to the call of God to follow him. So let me invite you to stand with me as we read Jonah chapter 1, if you're willing and able. And you can listen as I read God's word. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. 
And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that now in this uh, short time together that you would use your word to open up our hearts. That you would expose us, that you would heal us with your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, I wonder if you have ever tried or even succeeded in running away from home. It happened uh, so long ago in my life that I can't possibly remember the circumstances. I don't know why I was so angry at my mom, but I know that when I was maybe 12 or 14, at one point I was so furious at my mom that I went and got all of the cash that I had in the world, which was probably about $40 in my desk drawer, put it in my pockets, and I left home. I think I made it about to the end of our driveway. I hadn't really thought about where I was going to go. I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't know what I was going to do next. And so I just sat there and, uh, and kind of stewed for an hour or two until I think my mom came and found me. And, and, uh, and then I came back home. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, I, I'm sure that even in a, a crowd this size that... Um, there's probably an exception to what I'm about to say, but over the last week or so, I've asked many people, did you ever try to run away from home? And many people have had similar stories. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that even for those of us that have grown up in uh, you know, relatively well-adjusted homes, uh, in safe homes, and in, in homes where we have parents who love us and care for us, uh, at some point we often feel the need to run to get away. Um, There's an urge to run. What is it about the human heart that makes us so prone to flee from from love, from safety, from care, from acceptance, uh, from grace? Well, that's what the story of the book of Jonah is about. It's a story about the complexities of the human heart. Uh, Jonah is a great story. Jonah is a book that is known to almost everyone, whether you are a regular churchgoer or not. Uh, Most people have heard um, the story of the book of Jonah. Most people love the story of the book of Jonah. Uh, It's simple enough for a young child to understand, and yet it's nuanced and complex enough to be gripping um, for those who are uh, further advanced in years. I I noticed that my kids have already started drawing like comic strips of the book of Jonah since we sat down uh, this morning. Jonah is a great book. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a strange book. It's a gripping book. Um, and yet it is perhaps the most ironic and vulnerable book in the Bible. It's, it's possible that Jonah is the most ironically vulnerable piece of literature, uh, kind of ancient literature. I mean, who, um, what other story can you think of where... Uh, the protagonist, the main character, just behaves so badly, <laughs> um, other than the book of Jonah. Uh, unlike other prophetic books of the Bible, Jonah doesn't record the message of the prophet. In fact, um, Jonah's uh, sermon in this 
book in the original Hebrew is only five words long. We'll look at it in a couple of weeks. It is definitively the worst sermon ever preached in human history. It's terrible. <laughs> and so Jonah is unique because it doesn't record his message so much as it's, a, it's like a biography of the prophet and his, his, uh, his wrestling with the God who is intent on showing his grace to wicked people, uh, a wicked nation, but also a wicked prophet. But Jonah is not simply a story about one man who lived a long time ago. The book of Jonah shines a light on us as well, revealing the internal struggle in each of us, both before and even after God has made us his own. As Bruce Springsteen, the boss, uh, once said and continues to sing, uh, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. If there's something in the human heart that is prone to run, to flee, and most of all, the book of Jonah reveals the character of God, the depths and the riches of God's mercy. The mercy of God who longs to show his grace to the wicked city of Nineveh and the God of grace who longs to show his mercy to his rebellious servants. And so in this short kind of pithy book, I think what we really get is a snapshot of what it looks like to live the Christian life. What do you think Christianity is? Is it a set of abstract beliefs that we assent to. I think the story of the Bible as it's held out to us and has, uh, has been said before in the past, Christianity, uh, Jonah shows us that Christianity is this, that we are beggars. God has invited us to a feast and given us a foretaste of that feast. And then he tells us to go out into the world and invite other beggars into the feast as well. So look with me at the story of Jonah. Um, the question really that I want to ask and attempt to answer this morning is this. Why does Jonah run? Why does he run from God's presence? Jonah 1 begins with what is really the standard call for a prophet, a biblical prophet in the Old Testament. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And then it, God told him what to do. And if you were to read the Old Testament, you would see uh, that same formula over and over and over again. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so, and then they responded. Uh, that's how God calls prophets. But what is completely unexpected in the book of Jonah is the next verse. Verse 1, the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Verse 2, Jonah immediately got up. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah gets up and runs in the exact opposite direction. Now, what is going on uh, with Jonah? Well, um, Jonah is mentioned one other place in the, in the Bible, outside of the book that you know, has his name on the cover. In um, 2 Kings chapter 14, during the reign of Jeroboam II, Jonah had prophesied that had prophesied the expansion of the kingdom of Israel, the expansion of the borders of the kingdom of Israel. Now, um, what you probably don't know is that the reign of Jeroboam um, was a particularly low point in the history of God's people walking with God. Uh, in 2 Kings 14, it says that Jeroboam reigned for 41 years and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, 
And it was during this time that Jonah came and brought a message of good news, of God's favor to Israel. And so this is what we know about Jonah. Jonah is a man who has a, a sound knowledge of the goodness of God. He, know, he has read the books. He, is, uh, he has in some way experienced, he has even told other people that there is a God and he is good. And he has told that message to faithless people who are not actively following God. He knows that. Um, in other words, we could say like this, Jonah knew his theology. He knew that God is a God of grace. He knows that God shows favor. He knows that God is kind to people who don't deserve it. And in here, in the book of Jonah, the prophet absolutely refuses to obey God and in fact runs in the polar opposite direction. He refuses to, to experience and share the grace of this God that he already knows about. So God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, which is east from where he is in Israel. And Jonah uh, instead runs in the opposite direction. He goes west. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It was, uh, it's referred to um, in, this pat- in, in, in the book of Jonah, it says that um, Nineveh is a great city. We read at the end of the, uh, the book of Jonah in chapter 4 that there were about 120,000 people in the city of Nineveh. I mean, it's a, it's a very large city uh, in that time. It was a great city, and yet it was a cruel city. Uh, Assyria was, it was kind of the bully that was just beating up on everybody um, in the ancient Near East in, in this particular uh, time in history. Uh, Nineveh was known uh, for its just... Um, uh, it's barbarism, it's cruelty. Um, Tim Keller, uh, in his book on, on, on Jonah, he wrote this. He said, The emperor Shalmaneser III, the king of Assyria, is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations of enemies in grisly details on large stone relief panels. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know. After capturing their enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm and hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. Um, And uh, we could go on, but you get the picture. These were not not kind people. And so you can have a little bit of a sympathy for Jonah going, I don't know if I want to go talk to them about the grace of God. what in the world is going on here? Um, it's not too surprising that Jonah didn't go there, is it? Um, this is a little bit like, I mean, try to think about this in modern terms. This is like God um, saying, I want you to go preach the gospel to the Taliban, um, the enemies of your people who have been wantonly cruel towards you. These are the people that I want you to go talk to. God is saying, go to your enemies who are cruel and violent and offer them an invitation to repent and to receive God's mercy. And Jonah's response is basically saying, they don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. It'd be like God calling you uh, to go offer his grace to your ex-wife who cheated on you, your business partner who defrauded you, uh, that person that you would say, 
you know, that, that person ruined my life. They do not deserve God's grace. I wonder how many of us, like Jonah, have kind of this correct theology. We know that God is a God of grace. He welcomes rebels and he washes them clean. We know this in our heads, and yet it very rarely informs our behavior. That's really the question that Jonah is posing to us, because it's very easy to love people in general. Right? It's very easy to love people in general. <laughs> it's much difficult, more difficult to love actual people. I remember when I was in college and I was uh, kind of beginning this journey, this path into ministry. And one summer I was doing a, uh, <clears throat> an internship uh, at a church and my pastor was, uh, we had lunch at the A's Burger across from Doheny. And we were sitting at the A's Burger across from Doheny and he said, why do you want to be a pastor? And I said, because I love people and I want to tell them about Jesus. And he said, who? I said, what? He said, which people are you going to tell, like, do you love and that you want to tell? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, there's people all around here and you haven't told any of them about Jesus. And it was the first time it occurred to me that, like, loving people, actual people, is costly. It's very easy to love people, like, on the internet. I mean, most of us don't even do that, but it's easier to love people in general, right? Loving actual people is difficult. It's very easy to believe in a God of grace. It's much more difficult to be gracious. And so Jonah hears God call him to go east to Nineveh, and Jonah promptly, promptly gets up and goes west. And uh, he goes down to the port town of Joppa, and uh, he does something that would have gone against every instinct in his Hebrew body. He gets on a boat in the Mediterranean Sea. The Hebrews were not seagoing people. Uh, the sea was this mysterious place people went off to and never came back from. Uh, the sea was a metaphor for chaos in the Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrews hated the sea, and yet he gets on a boat. That's how determined he was to flee uh, against God's will. And he goes um, to Tarshish. Um, Tarshish, scholars believe, was in modern-day Spain. So it was the furthest reaches of the Mediterranean Sea. It was like the edge of the map. Nobody knew of anything beyond Tarshish. And so it kind of had taken on this like mystical like aura. It was like the Shangri-La. It was uh, uh, Jonah going to Tarshish is like, okay, this is, the, this is the picture. Put it in modern terms. God calls you to go preach the gospel to the Taliban, and instead you get on a plane to Las Vegas. Um, Jonah wants to go somewhere warm where he can get a drink with a little umbrella in it, uh, where he can take in a couple shows, do some gambling, and take his mind off of this entire call to follow God situation. Uh, he's just not going for it. One of the many ironies, I think, in the book of Jonah is that this prophet, whose, uh, whose identity is defined by God himself, Really, the only thing that we see him caring about in the entire book is his own comfort. Uh, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, but in chapter 4, there's this shade, that, uh, plant that he sits under, and he's really happy because he's not in the sun anymore, and then, and then the plant dies, and he's so angry. That's the only thing he cares about is his own comfort. 
This man who knows what God is like and has read books about him, he's told others about him, has no interest in letting those beliefs shape his behavior. The believer called by God is running away from him. I wonder if any of us can relate to him at all. I certainly can. Um, George Barna is a, uh, is a researcher. Uh, the president of the Barna Group, he does research on sort of the religious practices of Americans. And often um, his, his research, he does surveys all the time where he's asking people's questions about their beliefs and their behavior and how they interact. And, and often, tragically, his, um, his, his, his research shows us that there is a large gap uh, similar to the one in the life of Jonah, between the beliefs of believers and that and their actual behavior. And so, not too long ago, George Barna asked um, a question. He said, to what degree does your Christianity... Okay, so listen, he's asking people who consider themselves Christians to self-diagnose. To what degree does your Christianity have a practical impact on your daily life? And a staggering number of people responded, not at all. Not at all. He goes on to say that, he says many things. One of the things he says to kind of exemplify that, to bring it to life, he says this, only 6% of American Christians give what the New Testament holds out to believers as the minimum standard for generosity. And this takes place in what is widely, I mean, we all know, the most prosperous nation that the planet has ever known. Now, let's stay with me, because this is not really a point about money or your generosity. Um, I, I double-checked this statistic this week. 46% um, of the world's population lives on less than $5.50 per day. Okay, so what this is saying is almost half of the planet is living in poverty, and yet only 6% of American Christians give what the New Testament says is the kind of lower threshold of a generous lifestyle. At the same time, it is widely acknowledged that if the church, not just in America, but if the global church was to tithe, that we could wipe out uh, global poverty instantly. Okay, so I said this is not really about money. I'm not trying to like make you feel guilty. Actually, as a church, like you are very generous. Um, thank you. Uh, please keep it up. <laughs> I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. This is not a subtle dig about like, hey, we as a church should give more. The point is this, that when we look at the kind of big picture of American Christianity, there is in our lives a large gap between what we say we believe and the way that we actually live. Um, I've heard this statistic, apparently it's true, that America is the nation on earth that actually receives more missionaries per capita than any other nation on the planet. Now isn't that startling because you know, we're fairly used to the idea of American missionaries going overseas, but actually America receives more missionaries per capita than any other nation on the planet. What does that mean? It means that when the global church looks at American Christians, it sees people in need of help. 
the global church, when it looks at American Christians, sees Christians who are materially comfortable and yet spiritually anemic. Scott Sauls is a pastor in Nashville and an author. He said this, God's vision is for Christians to live in the world as a distinct and life-giving minority, not as a moral majority. Christianity has always flourished uh, and always thrived as a life-giving minority. Any student of church history sees that as soon as Christians gain a position of power, Christianity goes out the window. So again, I'm not really making a point about our level of giving as a church, but what I really want to consider uh, is this. To what extent does the message of the book of Jonah uh, reflect our church? What I think we really need to consider as a church is this. Why are we here? And what has God called us to do? Why is Resurrection OC here? You know, over the last year or so in our efforts, um, let me say it like this, over the last year or so, our kind of efforts, uh, desire, motivation for outreach in our community, whether that is serving our neighbors in Jesus' name or vocally um, communicating the love of God to our neighbors has gone on the back burner. And I don't say this at all as like to say that this is your fault because it's mostly mine. Um, if you've been around our church for a while, um, you know that this last year has been a, a time of transition, a, a difficult time uh, in the life of our church. Well, mo- maybe mostly mine. I don't know. Maybe just mostly mine. But... <laughs> um, <clears throat> About three and a half years ago, some of you were there in my living room when we talked about and dreamed about what it was going to look like when we launched this new church. And uh, one of the things we said is that the last thing we need in Orange County is just one more church. But the reason that we're launching this new church, Resurrection OC, is we want to be a church that uh, welcomes those who are far from Jesus and his people. Part of the the reason that we're here as a church is because there are so many people who just don't know who Jesus is in South Orange County. And so we want to be a church. We want to be a safe place. We want to be a welcoming church uh, for people to encounter God and his people. And yet, over the um, time since then, uh, that goal, that good goal, began to sort of eclipse (laughs) the other good goals in the life of our church. And so one of the things that I've heard uh, people say is that sometimes it seems like Bryce only cares about the church growing. And uh, there's some truth in that. (laughs) I don't only care about the church growing, but uh, um, at times the pursuit of the growth of the church has eclipsed other priorities. And um, I know that in that process I have hurt people, and I'm sorry. And so about a year ago, (sighs) just began to chill out, (laughs) maybe. And um, over the last year, we've really taken our foot off kind of the the growth gas pedal, and uh, our, our desire, our attempts to reach out to our neighbors. Uh, with 
the gospel and in service have really um, gone quiet. And I think for a season that has been the right, that was the right thing to do. And uh, it's been a very humbling year. And, uh, and yet God has been good and God has sustained our church as we've kind of leaned into community and began to uh, love each other and begin to, um, uh, well, develop uh, other good priorities as a church as well. And uh, we have learned a ton. It's been the right move for our church, and yet it cannot remain that way forever because the church exists in the world as the agents of God's kingdom. The church exists in the world as God's tool for the growth of his kingdom. And the heart that has been transformed by the grace of God cannot remain callous towards those who have not yet experienced God's grace for themselves. And so my hope and prayer is that as we enter this fall, and as we enter this new season, that we are entering a new season of ministry as a church where we are going to sort of re-engage God's priority um, to share the gospel with those that have yet to meet Jesus. And we want to do that in a way that is uh, humble and consistent with what we've learned over this last year. But we have to humbly re-engage the mission that God has given us, and there will be much more about that coming in the next couple of weeks. But the book of Jonah. Somebody said this to me this week, and it's true. The book of Jonah is the only book in the Bible that ends with a question. And do you know what that question is? If you go, don't turn there, but if you go to the end of the, the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, um, Jonah is uh, pouting, and um, God's just taken away this, you know, his comfort. He's getting sunburned now, and he doesn't like it, and he's pouting uh, at his loss of comfort, and he's pouting that God has shown his grace to Nineveh. And God says to Jonah, you pity the loss of your comfort, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? and also many cattle. And friends, what I want you to hear this morning is that there are 3.2 million people in Orange County. And spiritually speaking, what God would have us believe is that many of them do not know their right hand from their left. And you see them, your friends and your neighbors, we see them dropping off you know, our kids for school and playing on soccer teams with our children. We see them... In the freeway, if you need an example of where people don't know their right hand from their left, it's on the freeway. And I believe that God wants to use our church. I believe that God wants to use Resurrection OC. As beggars who have found where God keeps the food to, show, to tell others, hey, come and eat, come and be satisfied. Because here's what I know, running from God is miserable. It's a terrible way to live. And you see people doing it and your heart breaks for them, but it's much harder to see when it's you yourself running from God. It's a miserable, miserable way to live. It's hardly life at all. I mean, look at Jonah. He's on the plane to Las Vegas. He's on the boat to Tarshish. He's headed to paradise. And God in his 
fierce mercy for Jonah, it says he hurls a storm at this boat. And the boat is tossing and turning, and the sailors, like, it, what did it call them? Mariners? Like, mariners sounds way too severe. They're like pirates, right? These are like, they know how to handle themselves in the ocean, and they are terrified that the boat is going to break apart. And what is Jonah doing? He's asleep, like the whole of the boat. He's depressed. Uh, he's despondent. He is running from God. He's hopeless and he's miserable. It's heartbreaking to run away from God. Recently I was talking with somebody who told me I was listening to a podcast and I heard this quote. Here's the quote. The pursuit of the American dream leaves in its wake a trail of destruction. And he said, I knew right away that I had to make a change. I've said this before. We live in a place where Everybody is telling themselves, in six months, I'll be happy. In six months, just a little bit more, I get on top of this program, when we finish this remodel, when we replace that car, when we go on that vacation, then finally I will be happy. And six months comes and goes, and we are never satisfied. And here's the point. By any objective standard, you guys are winning at life. Globally, like, can we have a little bit of levity about that reality? Like, if you live under a bridge in South Orange County, you're doing really well. <laughs> I mean, in terms of access to education for your children, access to healthcare, access to you know clean food and water. I mean, and I don't think any of us lives under a bridge in Orange County. We are doing really well, and yet almost nobody feels like it's true. Running from God is miserable. It doesn't satisfy us at all. It seems like it would, right? Jonah is going on vacation. He's going to paradise. And he's miserable. It's horrible. In Orange County, the idols of work and children uh, plague us. Because, why? Because they're so noble. Okay, Pastor, back off. Like, I'm just trying to survive here. It's for my kids, Pastor. Like, I get it. I get it. I get it. I'm not saying this to you. I'm not shaking my fingers at you. I'm listening to you. I'm telling you what I hear you saying. You hate driving your children around from activity to activity to activity. Maybe it's time to make a change. Running from God, filling our lives up with other things. See, we see Jonah running from God and we think that like the immoral way to live is the only way to run from God, but there's a way to go to you know, work, not just nine to five, but more like seven to eight. Take care of your kids and buy you know, a nice house and all these things that says, hey God, I'm doing it all right, so you owe me. And so we're running from God without really running anywhere. We expect more than he's giving us. Running from God is soul-destroying. It's life-destroying. And so God, in his mercy, pursues us with his fierce love. And like he does to Jonah, he hurls storms into our lives. And when he hurls a storm into our lives, so often we think, you know, if God really loved me, he wouldn't treat me like this. And the opposite is actually true. It's it's the, the, the storm in your life, the, uh, the storm in your life is, is the sign 
of God's love for you very often. Not always, not always, but God often uses pain, suffering, and hardship to get our attention, to shape us, to form us, to mold us. It's his fierce love for his people that causes him to hurl storms at us. And so God gets Jonah's attention. And another of the ironies of this book is this, that the prophet acts like a pagan, and all of the pagans kind of act more like prophets. <laughs> uh, the sailors are freaking out and saying, what should we do? And Jonah says, it's my fault. Just throw me overboard. And instead of doing it, they say, no, we're not going to do that to you. And they do everything they can to try to save Jonah. But eventually they give in and they throw him overboard. Now here's the thing that we don't know. We don't know what Jonah's motivation is at this point when he says, throw me overboard. You know, is it kind of like one final act of rebellion where he says, like, I'm just going to commit suicide? Or is he, is he thinking that maybe in throwing himself overboard, he'll kind of like self-atone, make up for his rebellion? Or is Jonah thinking maybe just offer me as a sacrifice to save yourselves? We don't know. Um, we don't know. He's thrown into the sea, into what surely he believes is the end, but what we do know is what Jonah doesn't know, that God is not done with him. And the last verse of, of chapter 1 says that God appointed a fish, a great fish, we'll talk more about this next week, that came and swallowed Jonah, and he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. For now, what I want you to see is this. Several, several years later, Jesus arrives. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he says, um, one day he says to a crowd, one greater than Jonah is here. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, because it seems to me like pretty much everybody is greater than Jonah. <laughs> Like, Jesus, you're setting the bar fairly low here. Um, what in the world does he mean? I don't know if Jesus, you know, is like continuing the satirical theme of this book uh, when he says that. But what does Jonah mean, or what does Jesus mean when he says one greater than Jonah is here? What he means is this. Jonah volunteered to be thrown into the sea to escape his own sin. But Jesus was thrown into the depths of God's wrath for Jonah and for everybody who would put their trust in him. Jonah was thrown into the sea hoping that maybe it might do something for someone. But Jesus was thrown into the depths of God's wrath knowing for certain that that was what would be required in order to absolutely save his people. Jonah disobeyed God and as a result ended up getting thrown overboard yet Jesus Jesus never disobeyed God, and yet he was cast aside, taking on himself the judgment of our rebellion, the judgment that our rebellion deserves so that he might graciously give us real life. Jonah emerges from, the, from darkness after three days, and really like it didn't transform him much at all. But Jesus emerges from three days in the tomb, and it absolutely changes everything. Not just for him as he enters into his glory, but it changes everything for us as well. Because as Jesus 
is resurrected from the tomb on that first Easter Sunday. He does so as our inheritance, showing us what is ours through faith in him, that everything about your life will one day change, and because it will one day change, it's actually already changed now in the present. The grace of God changes everything. So the question is, has it changed you? Has the grace of God caught you? Do you know him? Are you running from him? Or is it maybe sort of both, and is it time to repent? I want to quickly leave you with um, two things. In the coming years, I've said we're going to re-engage our outward-facing mission as a church. What is that going to look like? What might it mean for you and for me? What is it going to uh, look like even to take the first step? Let me say this. The first step is not about what that might look like for you in terms of your action. The first step is what God needs to do in your heart. God gives us a new heart. God transforms us by the power of the gospel. This is why we come back to the gospel every week. Because we are so prone to living out of the scarcity mentality that says, um, if I give something away, then there will be less of it for me to have, to possess, to enjoy. What prevents American Christians from being more generous if we go back to that? It's this... It's, it's scarcity. If I give something away, then I will have less of it for myself. But the sign of Jonah, the one greater than Jonah, shows up, and it shows us that in the economy of grace, the scarcity of that the principle of scarcity is not in operation. See, God can change your heart. God can cause you to be generous. God can lead you out into the world to give yourself away. And you actually find yourself saying, now I'm fully alive for the first time. But first, it's got to begin in your heart. Okay. Have you experienced the grace of God? Have you, have you experienced God chasing you down and finding you and transforming you? He is fierce in his love. He loves you. He will not let you go. A love that will not let me go. It's a change of heart. That's the first step. But the second step is this. And I'll finish with this. Here, here's the question. How, why do we have the book of Jonah? Like, how do we know anything about this story? Um, not, not, I don't mean that, why is it in our Bible? Like, why is it in, why did anybody ever hear about the story of Jonah? Um, there's only one or two possibilities. Either Jonah wrote this book himself, or he told the story to somebody else who wrote the book down. And so... <laughs> Like, why? Why would you tell this story about yourself? Um, the only possible conclusion we can draw is that what Jonah doesn't learn by the end of the book, he did learn eventually. That the grace of God finally caught up with Jonah and transformed him, and he began to tell others about the way that the grace of God had affected him. And so here's the challenge, here's step two that I want to leave you with this week. I want to encourage you or challenge you to tell the vulnerable story of how the grace of God has caught you to someone. To someone. Like, it could be the person sitting next to you. You could go home and have lunch and say to your spouse, pastor, the pastor told us to do this, so let's just do it right now and get it. I don't care. But what I know is that what is compelling 
to those who are running from God is not a perfectly reasoned, logical, airtight argument uh, for why God exists and you should give your life to him now. But it's leading with your own vulnerability. A couple weeks ago, I was talking to... um, somebody and he was asking me, he said, what's God been doing in your life lately? And I told him a little bit of what I said a minute ago, that this last year has just been really humbling and difficult. And uh, part of that process has been me reaching out to my counselor and meeting with him regularly. And his like jaw dropped. He said, you're in counseling? And I said, yeah. And then he just began to gush. Brene Brown says that vulnerability is the first thing we look for in others and the last thing that we want to show about ourselves. When we open up and reveal our vulnerability, it's an opportunity for connection. But what's even better than that is when we open up and reveal our vulnerability and then we tell the story of how God has met us in our vulnerability. God is coming for you. He loves you. He's bringing you to his table. He wants you to bring others. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for this quirky and wonderful story. God, it raises all kinds of questions for our modern ears about what, uh, how you interact with the world. And God, would you help us to not miss the point that you are a God who pursues rebels as we run from you. Would you catch us, God? Would you help us to stop running? Would you then send us out into the world to share that story of how you have caught us with your grace? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.